This morning we're in 1 John, and we are finishing up on the prologue of 1 John, which is the first four verses. So uh, let's read that again this morning. Uh, find that in your Bible, and then stand with me, and let's read it. 1 John chapter 1, second week on 1 John. Let's read it together. <clears throat> what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray together. Father, we have gathered once again in Your name. We have gathered to worship You. We've we've come to this place to acknowledge uh, Your greatness, Your majesty, Your glory. And Lord, we... We thank you that uh, we worship um, God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we uh, thank you that you have given us in your word, your truth concerning your own nature and who you are and what you have done in creating this world and and, uh, how you sustain this world and how you have a, a plan and purpose for history. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not only to grasp that uh, plan, but also to know how we are part of that, how you have created us, that you have made us in your own image, and uh, that your intention is that we can be redeemed through Christ, that we can be a part of your eternal family and and uh, be with you forever. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to uh, understand that uh, big picture and and Lord, that we also, we thank you for your grace because we know we're only part of that big plan because of your grace. So Lord, this morning, as we think about uh, what you are about, what you are doing in this world, help us to uh, just acknowledge your truth, the truth that you've given to us in your word, that it is absolutely trustworthy and that we can build our lives upon it. Help us to do exactly that this morning. And Lord, be with us as we worship, that our uh, our thoughts, our focus would be entirely on you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure you know this, but we live in a world of fake news today, do we not? The line between truth and falsehood has become so blurred that it is difficult to really know what is factual and what is fictional. I mean, how many times have you read a touching story or seen a moving video only to find out it was all staged? You know, you watch Storage Wars on A&E, and then you find out it's all staged. It's all rigged. People didn't really find abandoned treasures in auctioned-off storage units. 
You hear that Tim Tebow once knelt in protest to the national anthem, and then you find out that's totally untrue. Didn't really happen that way. Or you hear that Starbucks is replacing plastic straws with paper straws wrapped in plastic, and then you find out that was a joke. Or you read about a man who sued McDonald's for being depressed after eating a Happy Meal, and then you find out that was just a hoax. It wasn't really true. How can you know the truth anymore? It seems that no one is telling the truth. Everything is fake news. In fact, it's gotten so bad, the only people we can really trust are the politicians. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. No, seriously, from written accounts to various forms of media, from sports heroes to community leaders, we are constantly being deceived. How can we know what is really true today? Even in religion, there is deception and falsehood. Sin and corruption is often covered up. Theological heresy has become a constant danger. TV evangelists are teaching all kinds of error without ever being challenged. And the vast majority of Christians are at least confused, if not downright deceived. And yet, we also are in danger of being misled if we begin to think that we are the first generation that has ever had to deal with these kinds of things. Even back in the first century, when the New Testament was being written, there were similar dangers. And of course, they didn't have the internet to spread these kinds of lies in an instant, but they did have false teachers and they did have much deception. The father of lies, the devil, has always made sure that this world is filled with deceit. Where can we find the truth? Where can we turn for knowledge we can count on? Where can we go for principles to live by that are unchanging and absolute. There's only one place, the Word of God. The revelation of the unchanging, eternal God Himself. And I hope you know that if you read something on the Internet, it may not be true, but if you read it in God's Word, you can take it to the bank. There's no fake news in Scripture. The revelation given there is absolutely reliable. And not only is the revelation of Scripture reliable, but the truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ is reliable as well. In the testimony of the New Testament, we have firsthand eyewitness accounts of men who walked with Christ during his entire time of his earthly ministry. And like the Apostle John, these men could give firsthand personal testimony 
as to the reality of the incarnation of Christ. As John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You know, we started through this prologue last week, but we didn't get through all of it. Even in our world today, there are those who look with suspicion on any kind of absolute statement, any kind of dogmatism. And yet the apostles of Christ spoke with a great deal of authority as eyewitnesses to his life and ministry. And even though our world today seems to have given up on absolute truth, we can know God's truth when we see it in his word. We can cling to it as that which does not change and is always reliable. And in this letter called 1 John, we find dogmatic proclamation of the truth of God from an authoritative voice of his last apostle. <clears throat> and of course, all the writers of the New Testament communicate in this authoritative way, but perhaps none as forcefully as John does. This apostle speaks with bold, dogmatic clarity. He speaks in terms of black and white, right and wrong. He speaks about absolute truth. The prologue of verses 1 through 4 really is one long sentence, which is really unusual for John. But here he verifies the heart of the gospel. Namely, that eternal life has been made manifest in the incarnate Son of God. In verse 1, he proclaims all of this is concerning the word of life, which is his term that he uses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the noun of God, the verb of God, and the adjective of God. Jesus articulates God. We know God through him. And apart from the person and work of Christ, we could not know God in a full and complete way. <clears throat> now, we're breaking this prologue down into six divisions. We looked at the first four last time. They're on your outline in your bulletin. And uh, I want to just review these quickly. We began with the premise. So look again at verse 1. What was... From the beginning, we spent a lot of time just on that phrase last week. But to summarize, John probably here is speaking in reference to the incarnation of Christ. Now, we know he does acknowledge his eternality in verse 2. But he's focused here more on his incarnation in which the apostles were able to verify his full humanity as well as his full divinity. From this, John moves on to the palpability, and that's not a 
common word today, but it means that which is obvious, evident, or plainly seen. And here, John points to evidence that Jesus was, in fact, fully human. This was something the Gnostics had denied. And so John hits this head-on right here at the very beginning of this letter. Look at verse 1 again. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld with our hands uh, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And we spent a lot of time going through each of those. Jesus Christ in his incarnation was not just some sort of phantom. He was not just some sort of mystical, uh, spiritually transcendent being. He had a real physical body that could be empirically verified by the eyewitnesses who were with him during the days of his ministry. And so John here testifies that he had personal first-hand experience in the presence of Jesus Christ that could be verified through his own natural senses as confirmation of his humanity. Then in verse 2, we saw the parenthesis. Verse 2 is a parenthesis containing additional information. Look at it with me. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the life was manifested. The word that is used there, as we saw, is a word that means to reveal or to make visible that which was hidden. This includes the entire process whereby his life became visible and tangible. And so this verb donates, uh, designates more than just his mere appearance. It means to reveal one's true nature and character. The nature and character of God had been hidden before the coming of Christ. And we could not fully know God apart from the person and work of Christ in this world. But with the coming of Christ in his incarnation, we have a better understanding of the nature and the character of God. And both the concept of the life and the eternal life, which John uses both of those terms, is equated with Jesus Christ himself. And that's made clear here when John says that he was with the Father. That's where he was before he was manifested to us. And so he was there with the Father. And John even implies that he was co-equal and co-existent with the Father. In this phrase that John uses in verse 2, he's going back to emphasize really what he emphasized in his first gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, fully God, he became a man. The preposition with there depicts a face-to-face relationship with the Father. And this is important because it indicates that these were two separate persons and yet sharing the same nature. 
in the Godhead. He came to bring eternal life to all who would receive him as Savior and Lord. He is the source of true life and eternal life. The Father and the Son both have the same divine life, and they both work together to grant eternal life to those who follow Christ. John put it this way at the end of this epistle. He wrote, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's that simple. Jesus put it this way in John 5, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And yet you're unwilling to come to me that you could have eternal life. Real life, eternal life, true life, is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you're unwilling to come to Christ and receive Him as Lord and Savior, you won't have that life. And the apostles were the eyewitnesses to this truth. Their job was to bear witness to the gospel, and that leads us fourthly to the proclamation, as we saw last time. For John and the other apostles, these truths are not just academic or theological truths, they are extremely practical. Look at the first part of verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. For John, that which was manifested to him, the word of life, became the basis for the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. He wasn't given the privilege of walking with Christ and having this first-hand personal experience with Christ just for his own benefit. No, he was given that so that he might then be a witness and to proclaim to others the truth of the gospel. John was a dependable and credible witness The other New Testament books written by the apostles or their close associates also carried that same kind of authority. That's what we call now the New Testament. And the apostles had the unique responsibility of bearing witness that Jesus came in fulfillment of Scripture and that his witness is true and that those who believe in him will be saved forever and that This is the witness that the apostles came to bring. Now, this is where we left off last time. But I want us to move on now to a fifth aspect, which is the purpose. Look with me at verse 3 again. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John proclaimed the Word of God so that, henna, in order that all believers would have fellowship with God and other believers. This is John's purpose for writing these things. 
It is for the purpose of fellowship. Twice the word koinonia is used in verse 3. And I hope you understand what that is. Fellowship is not just two fellows in the same ship. It's much deeper than that, biblically. In fact, this is a very rich, significant theological term. The Greek word literally means an authentic partnership. It means to share together or to hold in common. The adjective koinos means common. It can denote joint ownership or an active sharing in some common thing. In biblical terminology, it signifies a mutual partnership in a common cause or a shared life. But what we need to understand is that koinonia is a uniquely Christian term. Only genuine believers experience koinonia. Unbelievers do not experience it, nor do they understand it. Ebert says, Any other ground for entering into the fellowship of the body of Christ than the true gospel does not result in genuine Christian fellowship. In other words, if you're not truly born again, you're not experiencing genuine fellowship. This fellowship is not limited to those of a certain culture or racial background, but it is solely grounded on a mutual adherence to the apostolic gospel. Listen, there are only two families in the world today. There's the family of God and the family of Satan. Now, some churches teach that God is the father of everyone and that we're all brothers, and that may sound good, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Scripture makes it clear that you are either part of God's family or you're still part of Satan's family. You can't be somewhere in the middle. You're in one category or the other. And some might think, well, you know, a child of the devil, that that would be a person who lives in gross sin and immorality, but that is not necessarily the case. You can be a very moral person and even religious and still be a child of Satan. You can go to church three or four times a week and still be a member of his family because you have not been born again into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can do all kinds of good deeds and still not be a child of God. You see, you enter both of these families by birth. The Scripture says that when you're born physically, you enter into the family of Adam, which is another reference to the family of Satan. When you are born again, though, you enter God God's family through spiritual rebirth. Someone once said, you will either be born once and die twice, or you'll be born twice and die only once. 
If you're only born physically, then you will die physically and spiritually. If you're born both physically and spiritually, you will only have to die physically. But you see, once you are born into God's family by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a part of the greatest fellowship in the world. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about this fellowship. That's what John's talking about here. The Bible has a lot to say about it. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about the fellowship of the Spirit. Now, that's something you cannot touch. You can't put that in a test tube and analyze it. It is something you can hardly explain, and yet it is as real and authentic as you can get. It is something that a Christian experiences on a daily basis. The fellowship of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwells all true believers. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says of the early Christians, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and in the breaking of bread. In other words, they were enjoying the things of God together. They were enjoying studying the Bible, enjoying the Lord's Supper, enjoying being witnesses for Christ. So we see the importance of fellowship emphasized. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we have an interesting passage. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Listen, a Christian should never marry an unbeliever. Don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And someone might say, Preacher, that's pretty narrow. But notice why that this statement is given. If you go on in that verse, it says, For what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? And what communion does light have with darkness? You see, a believer cannot have true fellowship with a non-believer. Friendship, yes, but fellowship, no. It is impossible. Why? Because they don't share the same things. It's like night and day. In fact, it is darkness and light. But notice that John is writing to believers here in 1 John. In verse 3, he says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. John is saying that each and every one of us can know Christ personally, and therefore we can enter into fellowship with other believers. And of course, the Bible tells us that we know Christ through faith. You know, we're not privileged to be eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry like John was. But we can still know him. We can know him by faith. In other words, faith becomes the eyes and ears and hands of the soul by which we know him. And when we come to know Christ 
we come into fellowship with all other believers in Christ. We begin to experience the fellowship of the saints. And again, this is not some sort of cookies and Kool-Aid social gathering kind of thing. It is the sharing of life. It is the sharing of spiritual life. It is the sharing of eternal life. It is becoming a spiritual family. And it's really not wrong to call this a radical union. But notice that John says we not only enter into that kind of fellowship with other believers, we also enter into that kind of fellowship with God himself. The end of verse 3 says, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship involves a horizontal relationship with other believers, but also a vertical relationship with God. So this makes it clear that this is only for Christians. Non-Christians are not in fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son. On the other hand, those of us who have been born again need to understand what an awesome thing it is to be in fellowship both with other believers and with God himself. I mean, think about that. Do we really understand that the God who created this universe wants to be in fellowship with us? I mean, what an amazing thing to think about. If we could just grasp the significance of that, we would never miss another opportunity to have quiet fellowship with God. I mean, if we really understood that, we would make time in our schedules to read the Bible and pray. We would make time to praise and worship God. We would value the privilege and relationship that God has provided for us, that he wants to have fellowship with us. And by the way, notice the last phrase in verse 3 again. It says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This tells us there is a clear distinction between the two persons of the Trinity. Hebert says, The use of the preposition and the definite article with both marks the distinctness and equality of the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are one in Godhead. And that's why we talk about the Trinity, the three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we see two persons of the Godhead. Mentioned. Notice also the use of Jesus Christ here. Jesus is his human name, while Christ is his divine title. Christ is the Greek translation of the Aramaic or Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. It's the title of his divine office. And once again, John is emphasizing both his full humanity, and his full deity. John's designation here clearly identifies God's 
Son with the man, Jesus Christ. They are one and the same. And as Burdick puts it, this identification leaves no room for any kind of Gnostic distinction between the divine Son and the human Jesus. That's what the Gnostics did. They wanted to separate those two. John makes it clear these are one and the same. So in this way, John is really repudiating both the Serinthian and the Docetic forms of Gnosticism here. But there's one more element that we see in this prologue, and that is the product. We find the product in verse 4. Look at it with me. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The product is joy... And God wants our joy to be complete. Now, that's the New American Standard, but the King James has the word full. I like that word better. The Greek word that is used here means completely full or overflowing. Listen, God wants our joy to be full to the brim. Not half full, not almost full, but completely full. John says it's to be completely full to the point of overflowing. Now, what produces that kind of joy? Genuine fellowship with God and other believers. Do you have that kind of joy in your life? If not, maybe you should check out the quality of your fellowship. I mean, how's your walk with God? Are you fully plugged into the church? Are you truly in fellowship with other believers? It makes a huge difference. Now, I also believe that verse 4 applies to the entire book as well. This is one of three statements of purpose for this book. John is saying that this is one of the main reasons why he's writing this epistle. And there is another important issue that John is going to deal with that robs us of our joy. That is the issue of sin. It is impossible for you to be a believer that is walking with sin and be full of joy. But God wants you to be full of joy. It is possible for you to be a Christian and yet not have joy in your life. In fact, there are Christians everywhere who are defeated and burdened down with a load of guilt. Sin and compromise robs us of joy. And so the Holy Spirit, through John, wants us to understand there's an answer for our guilt. Sin does not have to rob us. Of our joy. There's an answer for sin. And so we see the well known verse in this chapter, verse 9, that says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the answer that John gives. By the way, joy is another word that is unique to Christianity. 
A person who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior does not experience genuine joy. Now, they may have some level of temporary happiness or pleasure, but they cannot know the abiding joy that comes from knowing Christ and having eternal life. Biblical joy is never dependent on circumstances. In fact, it is a state of fulfillment in the life of a genuine believer that can never be lost. Happiness is not the same thing as joy. But only those who are in Christ can experience true biblical joy. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. Paul said in Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is the product. MacArthur says, the secular dictionary definition of joy, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires is thoroughly inadequate when applied to the Christian life. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. Our joy is not based on that. Our joy does not go up and down depending on our circumstances. It is permanent and unwavering because it's based on eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, wrote this, another thing we must bear in mind in any definition we may give of New Testament joy is that we do not go to the dictionary, we go to the New Testament instead. This is something quite peculiar which cannot be explained. It is a quality which belongs to the Christian life in its essence. So that in our definition of joy, we must be very careful that it conforms to what we see in our Lord. Because the world has never seen anyone who knew joy as our Lord knew it. And yet, he's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So our definition of joy must somehow corresponds to Christ. He goes on to say, joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this, there is only one thing that can give us true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and His great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in Him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is in response and the reaction of the soul 
to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Now, going back to 1 John 1, 4, there may also be an eschatological element to this verse. The joy that we experience now is only a token of the ultimate joy we will experience when Christ returns. Then our joy will be full in an eschatological way. And someday we who know Christ will experience joy to the nth degree. But for now, God wants our cup of joy to be full And there's a mechanism for accomplishing that. And John is going to spell that out in the rest of this book. Things like confessing our sin, turning from sin, making sure we're in full fellowship with God and other believers, focusing on Christ, etc., etc. Now, perhaps you're thinking this morning, Pastor... My life is not full of joy. Why is that? I'm a Christian, but I don't have the kind of joy John is talking about. What do I need to do? Well, you should begin by asking yourself the question, how's my walk with God? How's my walk with God? Am I really fellowshipping with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. My spending time in God's Word. My spending time in prayer. How's my walk with God? And you need to start there. Listen, some of us need to turn off the TV or turn off our devices and get in God's Word. Some of us need to get rid of some distractions and begin to focus on our walk with God. The first aspect of fullness of joy begins with the quality of our relationship with God Himself. Are we really focusing on Christ in our lives? And then we need to ask, how is our fellowship with other believers? How much time are we spending with our brothers and sisters in Christ? This is another key. Are you trying to be a Lone Ranger, Lone Ranger Christian? Are you trying to go it alone? That's not God's plan. His design is for us to be in fellowship with the people of God, receiving encouragement and support from others who share the same biblical values and commitment to Christ. How's our fellowship with God, with other believers? Thirdly, is there some sin you need to deal with? Some area of compromise. Listen, sin and compromise will rob you of joy. It's not bad circumstances that remove joy. It's sin. Sin. And John is going to deal with this later on in this chapter. That's that's something that destroys joy. Well, how are you this morning? How's your walk with God? How's your fellowship with other believers? How's your joy? Is it full? God wants it to be. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray this morning you'll help us to just to understand the practical relevance of this passage and that we might know that your plan for us is that we're walking in fellowship with you and with fellowship with in fellowship with other believers that our joy is full so lord help us to uh to follow your plan to get in on what you want for our lives and help us to have all that you desire for us lord we pray if there's someone here today that does not know jesus christ as lord and savior we pray they would come to a saving knowledge of christ put their faith and trust in jesus christ alone for salvation and would uh, walk away from this place today knowing they have eternal life so lord i pray this morning as as we respond you'd help us to respond in a way that you would want in a way that honors you and uh, lord that uh, you might work in our hearts and minds uh, by your holy spirit as we respond uh, lord we pray that you would uh, help us uh, to to walk as your people and to be diligent in that and we ask this in christ's name amen